0: Well, there is no missing the fact that Christmas is upon us. Even if you try to avoid it, you can't. You walk anywhere, and you realize that in about a week and a half, things are going to get crazy around here, right? You walk into a store, and there's this giant, larger-than-life snowman smiling scarily down at you from the top of the aisles. This is at Home Depot. You think you're safe at Home Depot, right? Snowmen there are, are reminding us of that. Uh, We're getting cards in the mail. Christmas songs are on some 12-song loop on the radio. So wherever we go, we can't get away from from what seems like the same set of songs. Christmas Christmas catalogs are coming, and your kids are leaving them in conspicuous places where they know you'll find them. My kids have circled and initialed stuff in these catalogs, so as I randomly flip through them, I realize what Jaden or Karsten or Sawyer or Keller want. Christmas lights are up around town, another indicator that Christmas is on the horizon, unless you live next to that guy who leaves his lights up all year round, then it's whatever. But, but all these signs keep, keep reminding us that, that Christmas is coming. And what's so crazy, though, is I can be reminded in all of these ways and everything else that, that Christmas is coming, and I can fail to appreciate everything that that means. I can get swept up in the consumerism and the rush and the franticness and the frustration that goes along with the season and as a Christian I can fail to remember that what all of these things should be reminding me of however consumeristically and culturally it is but but they remind me that Christmas is coming and that means Jesus is arriving. That's what we celebrate when we when we when we remember and do our Christmas thing it's it's ultimately all about Jesus coming to earth in the flesh for us. Just the other week, I was talking with somebody probably around Thanksgiving time, and I was looking ahead at my December calendar, and we were talking about kids' programs at school, travel schedules, just normal end-of-the-year stuff, to-do list type stuff that, that, that all of us have on all of our plates. I was talking to this person and I'm like, you know, I just can't wait to, to get through Christmas and get to January. And the second I said that, I had to pull back from that because, because, one, that's not what pastors are supposed to say, but two, that's, that's not what I want to be feeling right now. I don't want to see Christmas as just something to get through because if this, if this holiday means everything that Scripture says it means, then it's, then it's a holiday to linger on to reflect on, to prepare for. And I'm not the only one who's having a, a rough-ish time with this, right? I've talked with people uh, here at Brookside, everywhere else, to just say, man, Christmas is such a busy time of year. I can't believe how fast it's coming up on us. I can't believe how much I have left to do before 2013 hits. Many of us feel that way. I think, I think one of the things the early church realized is that, is that it's always easy for us to forget some of those most important things about the Christian faith. And so, so from its earliest days, what the church did to help people like me with preparing for Christmas is, is they created this thing called Advent. Advent just simply comes from the Latin word meaning coming or arrival. And it's a period of about four weeks, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas and then Christmas itself that they set aside to very intentionally help us linger on Christmas and on what it means. It's it's this period of, of hope and longing, of joyful celebration and of peaceful preparation is what Advent is supposed to stir in us. And so as I hear what Advent is supposed to stir in us and as I compare that with everything else that I'm drawn to the frenetic nest, the frantic the the, the the rush, the frustration, the short tempers. There's this gap here that, that I need to address. I say, I, I want to close that gap and linger on what Christmas truly means. And so the question I have for all of us this morning is, is how do we get from over here, from all this rush and hurry and long lines and busy parking lots, how do we get from over here to overhear, to these feelings of of joy and hope and peace. How do those feelings of joy and hope and peace, how how do they come alongside the circumstances that are just a very natural part of this time of year? But then how do they also overpower other things that we know we shouldn't be feeling? Nobody wants to be a consumerist, you know? I don't know of anybody that says, man, I love all the emphasis, our culture, puts on the glorification and accumulation of stuff. Nobody wants that. If you do, I've got counseling hours between 11 and noon. on. on no, just joking, you know. No, nobody wants that sort of thing. Everybody wants to be drawn into what Christmas should be pointing us towards. The answer comes partly from what Luke read in Luke chapter, from, from what Steve said in Luke chapter 2, from the story of Simeon that we read there in Luke 2, verses 22 to 35. You see, the, the picture we get from Simeon encountering Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, it's not this uh, checkout line at Target where you do the obligatory, oh, I ran into you, cute baby, pat on the head routine. No. The picture we get from Simeon encountering Mary, Joseph, and Jesus is that this was a game changer for him. You see, Simeon saw Jesus the way Jesus deserves to be seen and it captured his heart. It wasn't tough for him at that point, I don't think, to, to focus his attention on this baby that had arrived. My goal for, for myself and my goal for all of us here this morning is that we would see Jesus the way Simeon saw him. That we would see Jesus the way he deserves to be seen and, and that our hearts would be captured by what that means. And I'm, I'm convinced I believe that if we just fill our, our minds and our hearts, our thoughts with Jesus, everything is coming means, then I think it'll be naturally. It'll be natural for the, for the tilt of our lives to tip towards Jesus and away from all of the cultural distractions that can be built into this time of year. And so what I want us to do is just to look at three ways Simeon was impacted by the coming of Jesus to learn the lessons that we ought to learn from these and to consider the application of that for ourselves today. So first of all, Simeon Simeon understands that Christ's coming fulfills the promise of God. Christ's coming fulfills the promise of God. In verses 25 and 26 of Luke 2, we see that Simeon was looking forward to what he calls the consolation or the comfort of Israel. We see that he is waiting for the Lord's Messiah, is how Luke 2 puts it. And from the way Simeon responds to Jesus, we know that Simeon believes Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. Jesus is Israel's comfort. Jesus is the Lord's Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises God had been making. Now that can seem abstract-ish to us. Because we we, we aren't living in that promise necessarily the same way that Simeon was, looking forward to it. But I think one of the ways we can appreciate any promise is by understanding a little bit about the history behind it. A good example of this are are, are the promises that are made at wedding ceremonies. We've all seen weddings, uh, either in person or on TV. We all know that weddings include this time where the bride and the groom, they turn, they face each other, they take each other's hands, and they make a set of vows to each other. where they they make those vows unique to how they will will promise to be faithful to the other, love the other, till death do us part. Those promises are a great and important part of weddings. When I do a wedding or when I see somebody who's recently married and, and they've just gotten back from their honeymoon, they're still settling into their apartment, they're in complete honeymoon mode, it's one thing for me to hear them say after four weeks of marriage yeah, we're, we're, we've been faithful at keeping our promises. Cool, you know, I'm not taking anything away from that. But I think we would, we would all agree it is a completely different category of cool when we find somebody who has been faithful at keeping their promises for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. I've met people who've been married for 70 plus years. The, the story behind the keeping of that promise just tra- draws me into it. I was at a retirement center with my couple's life group. Uh, Just this last week, we were doing a Christmas outing service project thing. And what we had done is the kids had made snowflakes, cut them out so, so people could hang them on their windows and in their rooms. We were there just to wish people a Merry Christmas, spend a little bit of time visiting with the different people in their different rooms. And this particular retirement center had two beds in a room, kind of separated, divided by a curtain, that sort of thing. And in one of the rooms I walked into, the curtain was pushed all the way back and the, the two twin beds were pushed together. And there was this couple that had many fewer days ahead of them than they had behind. And you just saw husband and wife huddled as closely together as they could be on those beds. The husband wasn't very responsive, wasn't able to interact. The wife was much more eager to have us there. She was, she was glad to, to talk and interact just a bit. But, but I am sure that that couple, if I asked them to tell me about our marriage, they would have decades of here's how we've kept our promise to each other." Just made me want to pull up my chair to that bed and say, "Teach me everything you can about marriage." because the history behind the keeping of a promise completely impacts how meaningful that promise is. And so, so let's take two minutes and do a crash course on the Old Testament because, the, because we're never going to appreciate what it means that Christ is the fulfillment of promise if we don't understand a little bit of the history behind it. So in the book of Genesis, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, we learn that God created the world as a good place. Read chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. It's what it's all about. But as early as Genesis 3, we discover Adam and Eve forfeiting this perfect environment that God had put them in. They disregard God's good And gracious rule, and they go their own way. They fall into sin. God would have had every right at that point to say, okay, I'm going to hit the delete button, kind of do the magnadoodle erase, and start over with somebody who won't blow it as early as Adam and Eve blew it in the biblical storyline. But God doesn't do that. God persists in his relationship with Adam and Eve and he makes this promise to them. Write down Genesis 3.15 in your notes if you'd like to see this, this, this first promise God gives to rebellious Adam and Eve. He tells he, he, He's talking to Adam and Eve and, the, and a serpent actually in this passage. But what he says, he says, One day there is going to be a descendant of Eve. The seed of, of the woman is going to overcome evil. So, so when God should have been furious, God is redemptive with his creation. He makes this promise then that the rest of the Old Testament fleshes out. And over the course of centuries, we discover that this, this promised seed of the woman is going to be the Lord's Messiah who would one day deal with our most fundamental problem of sin and restore God's broken creation. What Simeon sees is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise that that was given all the way back in Genesis 3, had continued all through the Old Testament, and had now arrived at the temple. That was why Simeon's perspective had changed. Simeon sees that God's plan to redeem us and defeat evil, it hasn't been thwarted. God's plan is still on track because of the coming of Jesus Christ. God's promise is being fulfilled. God hasn't abandoned us. Evil will be overcome. Redemption from our sin is offered. Life as it was meant to be lived is on the near horizon. That's everything that Simeon saw packaged together in the coming of Jesus. I want us to hear those things again because all of those truths are still true today Because Christ has come, because of Advent. So listen to these again. God hasn't abandoned us. There are things that have happened even in the last week that make us question that. But Simeon says, because of Advent, God is present. God is with us. Emmanuel, the song we sang earlier today. Evil will be overcome. Redemption from sin is offered. Life as it was meant to be lived is on the near horizon. We can experience it now in part and look forward to it in full one day. This, all of these things are why Advent is worth celebrating. Because the coming of Jesus Christ proclaims that God is is working his good and gracious plan. Fulfilling his promise to us. Simeon's understanding that Christ was the fulfillment of this promise of God, it wasn't just this idea to him. It wasn't this cognitive turn of the dial that didn't impact him in any other ways. No, this this idea that God was fulfilling his promise in Jesus impacted him, which brings us to the second way I want us to see Simeon being impacted by the coming of Jesus that we need to notice. See, You see, Christ's coming provides peace, In verse 29, we see Simeon saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant. How? In peace is what God's word says. The thing we need to notice, though, is that nothing about Simeon's situation had changed. Everything was exactly the same when he left his time with Jesus, meeting him there in the temple. Everything was the same then as it was when he had been approaching Jesus. You could look at just the external circumstances of Simeon's life, and everything was exactly as it had been an hour before that. But what Simeon did is he got out of those immediate external circumstances of his life. He hit Zoom out on Google Maps a few times, and he went to the stratosphere and said, my circumstances haven't changed. But on another bigger picture sense, everything has changed. God has come into the world. And that gave Simeon this peace. That's attractive to me because I can get so wrapped up at the microscopic level of the circumstances of my life. I can forget the bigger picture, stratosphere, 30,000 foot view of everything that is true um, apart from my circumstances, if I can say it that way. This was brought home to me just this last week. When, uh, when we made the semi-annual Weeby trip to the ER. Uh, my oldest son, Carson, and his younger brother, Jaden, and our uh, third son, Sawyer, uh, they're home from school and doing some mix, like Weeby version of MMA, WWE, sword fighting, and Power Rangers, kind of all wrapped up into one on our living room, so they're boys, so hey, we just, we embrace it, right? You know, we love that sort of stuff. So uh, they were roughhousing in the living room. I was sitting there in our chair. I'd, I had just told them, hey, guys, time to start settling down. And about 30 seconds after I say that, I see Karsten, our seven-year-old, take a flying face plant into the sharp corner of, uh, of, our, of the bookshelf we have in our living room. And so, so that ended up in, there's a couple pictures here that, um, a really cool man bandage around the head. We tried to get camo. They only had white. Uh, but but what it ended up in, there there are a couple stitches right above his eye that are underneath, kind of down underneath the skin because he had to pull like layer one together with two stitches there and then nine stitches across the top. When that happened, for about 20 minutes, my disposition wasn't peaceful. <laughs> uh, I was tense. I went into command mode where I'm barking out orders to, to my other two kids while I'm trying to get Karsten some sort of, I think I just put a towel under some water and in some ice and stuck it on his head. Probably not the right thing to do, but but I'm trying to manage the situation. I call Carrie. She is out shopping with our, with our fourth son, and in not a super gentle voice, I let Carrie know what happened and say, hey, you, you, you better meet me at the ER sort of thing, you know, start some paperwork. So for about 20 or 30 minutes, I'm just tense. I'm frustrated. I'm upset. My my focus is entirely on getting through these circumstances. But the second I got to the ER, got to Children's Hospital, my perspective changed because suddenly there was someone there who could manage things in a way that I could not. One of the doctors or nurses greeted us right when we went went in, was making some jokes about cool man scars, stuff like that. Carson had stopped crying by that time. They put a bandage around his head. They knew what to do. They knew what was going on. Nothing about our circumstances had changed. Carson still had a two and a half inch cut above his eye that needed 11 stitches. We still had a five hour wait ahead of us in the ER. Carson loved it because he got to watch cable. So it was good for him but nothing about our circumstances changed. But my perspective had, because I wasn't so wrapped up in the circumstances, but I turned them over to someone who could handle them in ways that I simply could not. Biblically speaking, that's a lot of what peace in this present world is. I don't know all of your situations. But I know enough about people, because I've worked with people for enough years, to know that our, our default mode is to focus on the microscope of our circumstances. Some of the circumstances we're going through stink. I know that. This is a tough time of year for some people. Or there are just unique circumstances to these last few weeks that have made life very hard. We still need to respond to those circumstances in all the right ways. I'm not telling you to ignore circumstances. We need to respond to those actively and in a godly and wise, obedient way. Hear me say all of that. But also, hear me say, don't just look through the microscope, but also hit zoom out a few times. And let's remind ourselves that in some way that maybe it's tough for us to see, God is working his good and gracious will in this world. Christ has come. Advent is upon us. Jesus says this best, no surprise there, himself in in the book of John. John chapter 16, verse 33, has this tremendous statement that is worth drawing our attention to. Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you can have peace. So there Jesus, now as an adult, he again says, I am the provider of peace. But, But I love that Jesus doesn't just stop there, but he qualifies to understand that, he says, In this world you will have trouble. To me, it speaks volumes of the faith that I adhere to, that the Lord that I worship acknowledges that in this world you will have trouble. We, we have felt that as we've seen the news, the news feed and the Facebook posts these last two or three days, as we've seen the interviews and cried when we're looking at a computer screen because tragedy has hit. Innocent kids. Those are the ages of my kids. How can you not feel something when you see that? In this world, you will have trouble. But neither does Jesus stop there. He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is where peace can be an expression of faith. There are times when we are only reminded of the trouble that is in the world. But this is where, as an expression of our trust in God, we say, God, my circumstances are tough. They're demanding my attention. But I'm still going to take the 30,000 foot view and remind myself that because Jesus came, God has not abandoned us. Evil will be overcome. Life as it was designed to be is on the horizon. All of these things are true because Christ came. Let's not forget that. Part of me wishes we could just stop on on this emphasis on peace because this is one of those Sundays we need to be reminded of that. But I want to move on and, and see this last way that Simeon was impacted by the coming of Christ because, because we don't, well, see, we don't want to just stop at peace. Instead, we, we see that the coming of Christ also offers salvation. And this is a must for us to include because if peace can get us through difficult circumstances, salvation rescues, them fr- rescues, rescues us from them. Salvation says that the outcome is going to be different from this trouble that we experience, this brokenness that we experience in our lives because of our own sin and around us because we live in a fallen, messed up world sometimes. One day, this salvation that Christ came to offer will be complete and full and final. There are some really great passages in the Bible. They're just, Paint this picture that stir our imagination of, of the hope that we have awaiting all who trust in Jesus. But this salvation is also available now. We can begin to experience the life that Christ came to offer by owning up to our sin. Turning to Jesus as our Messiah, as our Lord and our Savior. And then following him. That life is available now. So Christ came to offer salvation. That means at least a couple things. On the one hand, Brookside, that means Christmas is about mission as well. Christmas isn't just about silent nights and mushy feelings. Christ came to offer salvation. That means that we need to get behind that and be on mission ourselves. Christ's birth shows us that God is on mission to rescue and redeem us and this world. Let's be about that same mission. That means we, we, we build relationships with people across the fence and across the cubicle. And we say, hey, you know what? There's this Christmas thing going on at Brookside next weekend. Here's an invite. We'd love to have you there. It means you share a little bit about Christ in you in some of the unique ways that take shape in your life. But it means we are on mission with God Because Jesus is about rescuing broken creation, so let's be about those same things ourselves. But, But Christmas isn't only a call to mission. It's also an invitation. When we realize that in Christ, God is offering us salvation, some of us here want to respond to that and need to respond to that today. Some of these things we've talked about, about God fulfilling his promise not to abandon us, to redeem us. The things we've talked about about Jesus providing peace, that might be foreign to you. Where, where it's, 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 it's new to you, but it's attractive to you at the same time. If that's you, then, then let me invite you to experience the life that Jesus came to give. I encourage you to talk with the person who brought you. Come up and talk with me after the service. Talk with, we have a, a million people wearing blue shirts around. Talk with one of them. We would love to talk about the life of Jesus in us and invite you to that same decision. So Jesus came to fulfill the promise of God, to provide peace, and to offer salvation. As we fill our minds with everything that is true, because Christ came, then then may our natural tilt of our lives be towards Jesus over these next nine days and beyond. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, we, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to earth. We thank you for everything that means for our world. But also, Jesus, we want to appreciate everything that means for our lives personally. Drive those truths deep into our hearts. Show us how to just, just naturally let that overflow into worship and praise and reflection. This Advent season. Jesus, we thank you not only for coming, but for dying for us on the cross so we might know you and live, uh, live with you and live for you here in this life. So, so Jesus, um, we, we, we need you and we thank you for coming to meet our need. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to offer salvation. A great way to put the spotlight on that is by celebrating baptism. People who have taken the step of faith, perhaps recently, perhaps years ago, but are saying, we have died to our old way of life and we are raised to newness of life with Jesus. And so we want to share that unique story of how God's saving work is taking shape in us with you so we were, it was awesome to celebrate and to kind of hoorah cheer after a baptism first hour. We've got another one this hour. Turn your attention to the screens. Uh, baptisms are a celebration. So uh, after, we, after we celebrate this way, encourage us all, let's just erupt in praise. Because what we're celebrating is Jesus has come and Jesus is saving people. So let's, let's be uh, awestruck by that.
1: My name is Michaela Grooch and my story starts with choices and my reactions to them. The first choice really wasn't my own. Um, my parents, they um, chose to send me to private education, which was a huge financial and spiritual decision for them. They wanted me to be um, surrounded by adults who love Jesus and who wanted to sh- surround that love with me. And so I went to private education, first through eighth grade, and it was a huge impact on my life. Um, In the second grade, I made a choice that would change my life forever. I chose to love Jesus. Um, It was a huge decision on my part, and I don't think I really understood it completely as a second grader because you only know what a second grader knows. As I was like growing and changing, um, I really more sort of owned my faith, where instead of being t- taught and discipled into faith, I was going out and learning and just devouring the Word and completely owning it, where it was my actions, trying to personify who Christ is. My knowledge of who God is has really changed since I was a seven-year-old to now when I'm 22 I mean just my relationship has changed dramatically with um, just like daily life just living with him and having he impacts my entire like life and every decision I make today I am here to be baptized because I want to make a choice to choose him once again to submit to him and um, just an act of obedience of joyful obedience that he would pick me to be his daughter, and that I just joyfully get to accept that
2: Wow, um, Michaela, I love just hearing your story, and uh, before I baptize michaela, I want to say say two things to all of all of you out in the in the congregation. The first one is this: I want you to know that as I baptize Michaela, what I say, and you may not even be able to hear me, what we say when we lay them back is you were buried with Christ in his death and you were raised to walk in new life. And that's really Paul's exact words from Romans 6 and that really is what baptism is. It's a, I mean, it's a symbol, it's, it's a public declaration of her faith in Christ, but it's a symbol of, of being buried with Christ and now we have a new identity. We were raised with Christ too and so we're new in him. And so um, we're so excited that Michaela has publicly, wants to declare that this morning. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want you to hear is as she comes out of the water, I want you to, to celebrate well. And I want you to celebrate her well. So, so clap and cheer and shout or do whatever you want because this is worth celebrating. And we want to, we just want to give you freedom to do all of that. So Michaela, I just love your story. I love um, how getting baptized is kind of a simple outworkings of your faith in Christ. And even how at the end there, you could see your emotion through the whole testimony. And uh, you just are delighted to be a child of God, and that's, that's the grace of Christ, and that's wonderful. So, um, Michaela, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So you were buried with Christ in his death, and raised to walk in new life.